Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Jillie Smith, the podcast which digs a little deeper into the best of the food books to find the stories behind the recipes. This week, a subject very close to my heart and the work I do on the Food Foundation's award-winning podcast, Right to Food, how to change British food culture through kids. Chefs in Schools is a charity which teaches children from the very youngest age to love food by growing it in school gardens and eating the kind of dishes that makes most kids run screaming. We then took the crumb away from the fish and we called it naked fish. And because we used a bit of humour and they'd, you know, stand in a queue going, oh my God, we're going to have naked fish, then that was fine as well because it wasn't this sort of tug of war that you have with kids, like, eat it, don't, I don't want to eat it. You know, it was funny, so they went with it. Co-founder Nicole Pisani is a chef who's worked in top kitchens around the world, from Rene Redzepi's Noma to Ottolenghi's Nopi. And with food writer Joanna Weinberg, they've written the book which tells the story of chefs in schools and shares the recipes which are feeding tens of thousands of British children a whole new way of understanding food. I asked Nicole how such an amazing charity started with a tweet. Um, So I read a tweet by Henry Dumbleby, who wrote the school food plan, and the tweet was to be a chef in his children's uh, primary school in Hackney called Gayhurst. So I answered the tweet and said uh, it would be great to be be put forward for the job and before I knew it I was in a school kitchen in Hackney. So you were a top chef you were working with Ottolenghi and it is difficult for women isn't it to to work in hospitality. I mean Ottolenghi is one of the the front runners in making it a lot easier by actually creating the test kitchen to so that women can actually work at 9 to 5 but that's it's pretty rare. Is that one of the reasons why you wanted to do something that you could actually manage your own time and have your family and and live a life? Definitely, and I would have never left Ottolini to go and work in another restaurant. It was a perfect job. And it's just that I, apart from the work-life balance, I also felt that um, I was coming to the end of doing what I did for a really long time and wanted to do something different. But I didn't know what that different was. But I think I had done, I'd been in restaurants for over 20 years. And I just felt, you know, the reason, the love of, you know, service and the love of produce and the love of forming, you know, a family. I just felt that there was something I wanted that was different to that. So fast forward, you actually offered your services to Gayhurst Primary School in Hackney and you began what has become a revolution in school food. Tens of thousands of children have now benefited from the chefs in schools in 80 different schools across London now. And it's led to the writing of the book. We'll go into a lot more detail about what Chefs in Schools is all about because that is what the book is about. Joanna, I just want to bring you in here Um, At what point did you get involved in the project? Actually, quite near the beginning, um, Nicole had been working as head chef at Gayhurst for a couple of years. And she had this vision that if it could work in one school, it could work in many. And I got involved through Thomasina Myers, who is a who is a trustee and a patron and a huge supporter. She'd met Nicole and decided that she wanted more than anything to to bring a version of that to her own children's school over in West London. So we had this sort of coffee in one of the Oaxacas just north of Oxford Street. It's sort of this epic moment where we sat around um, thinking, well, you know, can can we do this? How can we do this? And we just said, well, 
You do that, Nicole, you write the plan and Tommy, you talk to the your head teacher and I'll see if I can get some language down around it and let's just give it a go. And um, Henry Dimbleby, who we all knew for in different ways, agreed to be chair, which is absolutely brilliant because once he put his um, energy uh, behind it, he's a co-founder and it just kind of took flight and came together around this idea of just getting to as many children as we could to instill a love of good fresh food made from real ingredients. And you've got some real heavyweights now in the kind of the whole food system, which is so much more than just cooking nice food. I mean, Henry has since written uh, the National Food Strategy for the government, uh, set up Leon with with John Vincent, who also wrote the school food plan with him. Uh, Anna Jones, you know, who's a, a real campaigner for sustainability and food. Uh, Otolenghi, he's he's lent his his support. You've got some real heavyweights supporting what you do, and therefore it is literally from uh, field to fork, isn't it? Spade to spoon. Let's go through the book, Feed Your Family, which really contains the recipes that you use in, in the schools. Uh, and through those recipes and those food moments that you've chosen, we can really kind of unpack what Chefs in Schools is all about. You know, you set out really deliberately to blow the minds of the kids, didn't you, Nicole? You were using, you know, Moroccan spices and kimchi and pickles and miso and, and all sorts of the other foods any parent would, would normally associate with sending kids screaming. But you deliberately chose the journey and you capitalise the and J to, to really sort of um, emphasise how important it is to take kids with you from A to B in terms of those foods. Tell us about your first food moment and the journey of fish. <laughs> so I always laugh um, that I'm going to be known for the journey of fish. But uh, we so from from day one and I just um, want to kind of point out that I always taught that the child is the customer. So therefore, why would they not want flavor? Why would they not want to experiment with kimchi and miso? Like, why are we not giving them what we would find satisfying in food ourselves? So that was for me, that was key. I didn't think that I was feeding kids. I thought I was feeding customers and wanted, you know, to do my best at doing that. So, you know, we first day, um, we wanted to provide exactly the same food that they were having, but making it from scratch. And we thought that that's the way that we're going to be successful. So we took things like fish fingers, chicken nuggets, we took sausage and mash, and we just made everything in house. But obviously, if you would, you know, have something uh, like a, a standard, you know, bought in fish finger versus fish from, you know, Brixham, which comes out of the water on a Wednesday and is onto a plate on a Friday, the flavour profile in that is going to be so different. So kids went from, you know, reading fish fingers to getting this, you know, freshly baked hake in breadcrumbs. So that took a long time. So the journey was getting them used to the flavour, you know, understanding that. You know, and I always say that they'd, they'd, they'd be like, well, it just tastes of fish. I'm like, exactly. Um, and that that was the first step. Then we realised, you know, we were kind of not pushing boundaries anymore by serving fish fingers. So the next step was like, what can we do to get them more engaged with produce and we then took the crumb away from the fish and we called it naked fish. 
And because we used a bit of humour and they'd, you know, stand in a queue going, oh my God, we're going to have naked fish, then that was fine as well because it wasn't, you know, this sort of idea of, uh, sort of this tug of war that you have with kids, like eat it. Don't I don't want to eat it. You know, it was funny, so they went with it. And then the kind of last bit of the journey was that the fish delivery didn't come in, and we always ordered big portions of hake. So um, we were waiting on a Friday morning. Friday at ten o'clock, we're like, you know, there was nothing in the freezer, no backup. Where me and a friend of mine were like, well, this is it. We're losing our job. And the fish arrived and it, uh, the whole fillet of hake arrived. And we're like, let's just make a tomato sauce, put them whole in the oven, serve them to the kids, hide ourselves in the office, lock the door and then just, you know, resign. Because there's no way the children are going to come up to the service counter and see these huge fillets of fish like skin on. And lo and behold, we still had a job and the kids loved it. So we now, the recipe, which is baked hake on tomato sauce, is coming from the fact that we didn't have a fish delivery. We had to cook the fish whole. And the kids go up to the service counter and have this whole scoop of sort of, with with a pair of tongs, they just grab a, a bit of this whole fillet. And they loved it. So we kind of got known out of purely a mistake for the baked hake recipe. <laughs> and do they get a sense of where the fish comes from? It's a British product. I mean, you know, I'm constantly doing stuff about why we don't eat fish. Um, I, you know, I do the Right to Food podcast for the Food Foundation and I work with children living in food insecurity and constantly trying to work out why can't we eat food from the land? And part of that is fear of fish. And it's also about procurement. It's about how you get hold of the food from the land. How are you getting fish from Brixham into a school in Hackney? I mean, we're, we're doing a lot of work around it. I mean, the, the easy solution and the answer to, to your question was that, you know, the importance of produce was key. And realising that, you know, the more you sort of brought in produce in its rawest form the cheaper fundamentally it is when you've skilled the team and you're putting most of your budget into labor cost. And that fundamentally was a winning solution to us. One, the teams were happier. They were more invested. They were getting paid a regular normal salary for the job they were doing. They were feeling passionate and they were getting inspired by the fact that they were cooking this food. You know, this, the skills levels increased and the kids were getting a product that one, was, you know, brought from the land around them. But two, um, with as little, you know, intervention as possible. So literally the fish is on tomato sauce and in the oven. And that is it. I think one of the exciting things about the Chefs and Schools project is that there are lots of wins that you don't necessarily expect. So whilst at the heart of it, it is about inspiring children to eat really fresh, delicious, natural, real food... Around the edge of that is drawing together produce from the land around the schools. There are so many producers, farmers, fisheries who, who really want to support their local schools and want to get their food to local projects that really work. Then there's also skilling up the kitchen teams. And previously, there are very little skills involved or required in the school kitchen systems. But actually... We have such an exciting opportunity to train more people into hospitality. And in, in the Chefs and Schools kitchens, the teams 
are actually trained in restaurant skills. So if it is possible that they can transfer into different areas of hospitality. That's a massive win for everybody at the moment as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit about the people in the kitchens and that inc- that real important family feel uh, so that the kids are actually trusting uh, the people who are feeding them. We'll talk about that in an, in, in a next food moment. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm literally editing a, a, a right to food episode right now about leveling up. Um, and the infrastructure in the north is just impossible. Transport systems are just not there to support the infrastructure of getting food from the land to schools or anyone, actually, the vanishing high streets. Um, big issue. Listen to right to food when it comes out in a couple of weeks time. Joe, you were just talking about, you know, produce and the second food moment that you've chosen is the edible garden. I mean, I remember interviewing Alice Waters back in the mid 2000s about her edible schoolyard and it made so much sense. The whole slow food movement starting from growing food in schoolyards, learning through produce and eating the food that you grow. What a joy. Seems so obvious. Why doesn't everybody do it? I think one of the one of the um, essential things uh, is getting children to get involved with growing produce from scratch. Uh, And in every school, even if there's almost no outside area, there are there's the possibility of growing something if it's just in a planter, if it's some herbs. I remember Nicole telling me once that she'd seen a little, uh, a sort of preschooler in the playground, I think it was at Gayhurst, chewing on something. And uh, the teacher who was in charge went up to the child and said, what are you eating? And these sort of huge big eyes looked up and said, it's only a piece of fennel, miss. And... Just the idea that they were picking herbs from the planters and having a good old chew on what's actually quite a challenging flavour was just really exciting to us. But that really came. Nicole, talk a bit about the edible garden at Nopi because it all comes together in this specific recipe. So originally, it's actually a dish from Noma. And the idea was that you did uh, an edible soil. So you take olives and you dehydrate them. And then you blitz uh, the olives up with some breadcrumbs and you flavor the breadcrumbs with, you know, a bit of cumin and coriander. But you're sort of creating this sense of intrigue and, you know, theatrical way of sort of engaging the kids um, and we like it as well. You know, Heston is known for this. And I guess for us, when we go out to eat, it's an experience as well as, you know, eating food for sustenance. So the recipe did come around originally from Noma. And then we used to do it at Nopi as a crudite. So you'd get it on the table with a little bowl. There'd normally be a dip underneath. Uh, the soil will cover the dip and then you'd have baby veg, which are nicely prepped in the soil, coming out of the soil. And when you pull the, the baby veg out, you'd obviously get a bit of the dip with the soil. But we thought, what a great way to put these on the tables so that kids could, you know, it's it's a way of once again getting them to eat vegetables. So they're pulling out the, the little baby veg and in schools, obviously, we do it with cucumber sticks and, you know, maybe less of the sort of <laughs> baby beetroots, but more more of the baby carrots. And, you know, the kids pull it out of the soil and um, they love it. They find it really funny. And I think one of the funniest bits was that 
then the midday supervisors had to go around the really young children and be like, you can't eat the soil outside the school. You can only eat this soil. <laughs> like, I mean, as much as I think they love, you know, the crazy uh, experimental stuff we did, there was this side that there was always like, you can't, you know, like, you know, building the fire pit in, in the in the playground, you know, these kind of moments where... but. It's all about the engagement of food. It's all about making food, you know, exciting and making, you know, food sort of, yeah, just part of the conversation. It's about like, awe and wonder. Awe and wonder is actually in the curriculum. Did you know that? Um, I remember when... Oh, I really? A, yeah, I was on the PTA when yeah. my kids were at primary school. And I was um, charged with kind of talking to the kids about the spirituality that they were getting. And it was a great school. They did meditation first thing in the morning. And the kids loved just being really quiet. And it was really sweet. The subject that I had to talk to them about was awe and wonder. Did they feel awe and wonder in their spirituality lessons? And I thought then, that's what we need in the canteen, awe and wonder around food. And your third food moment is all about that, isn't it? It's about the pizza on the fire, the, the fire pit in the outside playground, um, mackerel on the fire, teaching children about real cooking, flames, heat. Tell us about that one. <laughs> it, it is really exciting. I, I think um, one of the aspects, I think that awe and wonder idea is really cuts right through the heart of so many different things that chefs and schools set out to do, uh, one of which is cooking over fire and um, just removing the barriers because I think a lot of our culture, particularly around children, has become very much health and safety and um, engenders a lot more fear than it does engender wonder. And, you know, making all of that possible again by giving access to children, to knives, to to fire, to the real essential tools of cooking, it is possible to do that without them hurting themselves. They don't want to burn themselves or cut themselves, but they do want to really engage with it. And you need to get your hands on on those implements and utensils to do that. So uh, taking a fire pit outside, uh, talking about cavemen, talking about the purpose of fire and the purpose of cooking and, you know, the, transform the transformative effect of fire on the way that we've evolved as humans, that it allows us to spend much less time digesting and much more time thinking and changing the world. And they get so excited about that. And of course, then there is the sheer flavour of it, which has become threaded through the current moment in cooking. I mean, over the last decade, the greatest chefs have chosen to cook over fire, whether that's outside in a kind of foraging environment in Scandinavia or whether it's, you know, in the heart of the most fashionable restaurants in London, building fires and cooking into fierce ovens. And the flavour profile of that is just so exciting and enthralling, but also it does just connect us straight back to our most essential selves. Um, but I think on so many levels, it's about removing the all the different processes that have gone into food once some of them are about cooking taking away the complexity of it and taking it back to its essential elements and I think in different areas that's the same thing removing as much process so that the children are not eating processed food so that they are understanding what ultra processing means what it does to you and why you should choose real food is absolutely at the heart of it and that and that 
cuts right through different elements of the project. Yeah, there are so many things that I could take apart in that. It's just so completely fascinating and right. I was very moved by one of our Teenage Food Ambassadors at the right at, at the Food Foundation on one of the episodes I did recently on Right to Food. And they said, she's 14, and she said, we know from cookery classes at school what we have to put in food, protein, carbohydrates. You know, we know all the parts of it, but we don't know what good food looks like. And I thought that was so interesting. It's like there's no picture on the front of the jigsaw puzzle. You know, they've got all the pieces of the puzzle, but they don't know what it looks like. And actually, as we go into your third food moment, which is full of the variety and the wonderful eclectic nature of the way we live in, particularly in London, but in Britain, how do you tell children what food looks like? I mean, we say that uh, you eat first with your eyes. So... I think if food looks uh, colourful, well, th- this is, well, in general, if it looks colourful, if, if it, you know, it looks pretty, if it looks like it tastes good, then you're going to eat it. But I also don't ever want to underestimate, I think we eat with all our senses. So we were saying recently on how smell is also really important. So as much as we're eating with our eyes, we're also smelling stuff and wanting and getting intrigued by the smell of garlic of a specific dish or the smell, you know, sometimes you could smell that it's actually spicy. So I I think apart from us eating with our eyes and, you know, going back to the question of what does real food look like, I'm not sure entirely that we know what it looks like but when we look at it we know it's It's whatever it is it's just amazing it's going back to that awe and wonder it's a wow factor yeah and then sometimes you can have a simple tomato salad that you you look at it and you think this is the simplicity is also stunning so you know I, I I mean obviously produce go back to produce and sourcing but also I think, you know, food made, which is one of the main things that we say at Chefs and Schools, that we don't do healthy food. We don't, you know, we just cook. Great food. Yeah. With love. Whoever that is. Yeah. Whoever that's cooking it, if it's done with care and with a passion and, and you love what you're actually doing, yeah. then that is good food. Yeah, absolutely. Which leads us nicely onto that that fourth food moment, which is Tony's jollof rice and Susu's Moroccan chicken and Sarah's Ethiopian casserole, the importance of the kitchen teams. This is really bringing out the family element of all these cook teams because there are 80 of these schools now under the Chefs in Schools charity. Isn't that right? Uh, there's so there's a total of 58 but then we work with Enfield Catering Services and the collaboration is with another 40 schools so that's okay. that's the exact so oh, that's so there's even more than 80 but the same principle is in each of that, that that the kitchen teams are people with names and personalities and backgrounds and they serve up the meals that they might cook at home correct and Joe I know that I guess it was Joe witnessing and obviously putting it down in words but um we always say there is this sort of invisible glass that falls between the kitchen and the rest of the school when you have this you know skilling of the teams well the kitchen teams are such an integral part of a school and they are not always celebrated as such but the people in who tirelessly cook for our children 
are are they are feeding them, and often in many of the schools, the only hot meal that children are eating, and, and majority of our schools are forty to sixty percent free school meals. Um, and that's only going to increase with the current economic uh, environment and outlook. So the people feeding our children are, are absolutely crucial. And it's very important that we know their names, that the children learn to trust what is coming out of their dishes, that they are human, that they are characters, because we're trying to build a family into every school. Uh, so... So why wouldn't you want uh, the chef at a parent-teacher meeting talking to you about what your children are eating? Why wouldn't you want your chef to know that um, Johnny is a bit frightened of peas and to be able to take five extra seconds to crouch down to head height and look at a plate of food together and say, hey, how about just having a go at three of them today? Because that's all it takes. It takes a few seconds. And if you do that three or four times a day to different kids, they're going to, they just, they remember it. Those, those formative moments around food are so massive. And as an adult, you don't, and particularly an adult who loves food, uh, you don't really think about um, the fear that some children have or anxiety, um, the the environment of a school dining hall, all of that, um, the more negative aspects of it can be completely dissipated and dissolved by just having real people who know each other and building this family with food at the heart of it that smells good, that looks good, that tastes good. And that brings tremendous joy as well as sort of nourishment into the centre every, every school day. Yeah, it is possibly the most important thing that we can do for our children uh, is to raise them eating food that they grow themselves and they learn to understand and take that journey and learn to cook themselves uh, using your book and lots of other books and, you know, and Google and, and YouTube and, and love food. Henry Dimbleby's National Food Strategy hits at the heart of the way that we have to change everything, the whole fabric of life. And food is essential to health, pocket and planet. Do you feel that these children will be leaving school understanding how important it is to eat healthily, to have access to healthy food for everyone, to cook with food that is sustainable and that is inexpensive? Yes, definitely. Um, I think, as we know, the food system is currently, you know, broken. And I have always believed that it's the education and it's teaching, you know, it's not, it's teaching choices. It's giving the information to make the right choice. Yeah. This idea that, you know, having an avocado flown in is more sustainable than eating what's outside your window is what we're trying to teach kids on a daily basis. A lot of the, the teenage food ambassadors I work with at the Food Foundation say that at primary school the food was better. There are more initiatives at primary schools. By the time they get to secondary schools it's much more complicated. First of all procurement is much bigger issue for bigger schools but also you've got all sorts of issues like stigma around free school meals and so children will avoid eating at school yes, uh, there's correct. lots of fad stuff there's lots of food insecurities i mean there's lots of uh, body issues there's lots of tribal behavior how could something like chefs in schools work in secondary schools 
We do. We work in uh, eight secondary schools and I don't think any of the schools actually have the same model. So it's trying to find out what actually works in that school. Uh, we have one very successful model, which is family style dining. All the kids eat all together. There's one person who is allocated to serving the table. There's another person allocated to clearing the table. Those jobs actually get rotated. All the kids eat together. You get, you know, so, and I think that's a model that really works. Um, uh, they have a breakfast, but they don't have snack, which I think is another really good choice simply because they're hungry enough at lunchtime to eat everything that's put on their plate. You know, the, the school doesn't have a lot of waste in the dining hall. So there's a lot of elements with, you know, secondary school that do make it harder. It's much more of a restaurant model. You know, kids come down and they're able to choose what they want to eat. So therefore, it has to be something that it's not what we want them to be eating. It's actually, you know, something that is competitive to the high street or what they're grabbing at lunchtime. And that's quite hard to make sure that then that kind of does fit the school food standards and what you know you're not serving deep fried food every day you are serving vegetables you know so it is really hard to get that balance right and that menu yeah, right and what about the stigma of free school meals how do you get around that one um I, t- to be honest i think that the school have to just continuously work with the children outside the dining hall you know i think making sure that a child who is entitled to free school meals is taking them. And if not, then asking why. But I think it's the whole school approach rather than it just being, you know, it's not a problem that should be tackled in the dining hall. Because at the end of the day, this is the sad, you know, statistic is that a lot of the children in secondaries who are entitled to free school meals aren't taking. This has been going on eight years now. So you will have seen kids go into secondary school from the primary school that you started from. Are you still in touch with them? That's so funny. I was at Joe's birthday party over the weekend and I met a student that I used to cook for at Gayhurst. And the first thing he told me, he said... The food in my secondary school is not as good as Gayher. So that's actually happened last weekend. Um, but, you know, eventually, hopefully you will be in enough schools that it, you know, a good school meal becomes a norm. That's what we're aiming for. Thanks for listening. You can now read the transcripts of Cooking the Books by clicking on the link to podcasts on jillysmith.com. Please get in touch on social media. I'm at Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith on Instagram and at Jilly Smith on Twitter. And you can sign up for the newsletter at jillysmith.com. I'll see you next week when I'm with Al and Kitty Tate, the dad and daughter team for whom baking bread has literally changed their lives. 